The following presentation was produced by the Buddhist Society of Victoria. Please visit our website at bsv.net.au. Okay, so uh, let us continue. So we have, so far we have looked at uh, 12 of these Bodhipakyadamas, uh, and now we're going to move on to the next set. So we have uh, seen so far the four right efforts, the four satipatthanas, the four bases for uh, spiritual power, uh, and the next one is the five faculties, the five spiritual faculties. Uh, and uh, so, uh, and the five spiritual faculties, uh, they are very similar to the five powers. Uh, so these are the five pancha indriya and the pancha bala, and uh, basically, uh, according to the suttas, there seems to be no difference between the two. Uh, they are actually said pretty much to be equivalent. Uh, why there are two separate categories uh, is not entirely clear. Uh, it may just be a matter of naming, and because they have different names, it may emphasize different aspects to them. Uh, one being a power, another one being a faculty, uh, one being like an ability perhaps, uh, like a faculty, one being a power that uh, empowers your meditation practice, something like that. Uh, but it's not entirely clear why they are separate. Uh, so uh, anyway, so we're just going to have a look at the five uh, spiritual faculties uh, and uh, see what they are about. And this is, as I mentioned before, a slightly different way of looking at the path. It is not really so much an aspect of the path as a path viewed from the perspective of the Noble Ones. And this is what the, uh, the first little sutta here says, just to kind of uh, establish that uh, from the sutta perspective. So this again is from the uh, SN, the Sangyutta Nikaya, the Connected Discourses uh, of the Buddha, uh, four, number 40, the 48th Connected uh, collection of connected discourses, uh, uh, Sutta number 18. Uh, and it is called practicing, and this is how it goes. Mendicants, uh, there are these five faculties, uh, uh, in five indriya, uh, what five? Uh, the faculty of faith, uh, the faculty of energy, the faculty of mindfulness, uh, the faculty of immersion or samadhi, and the faculty of wisdom. Uh, these are the five faculties. Uh, uh, so uh, uh, those are just the enumeration of the five, uh, and the uh, Pali word Indriya is actually based on the word Indra. Indra is like the ruler of the gods, uh, so they are something that rule. Uh, yeah, they are kind of rulers in your mind. Uh, they rule how you uh, think and how you uh, practice and how you perceive and how you see the world and what you prioritize and all of these things. Uh, they become like things that. Uh, uh, establish the shape of your life, if you like, uh, indriyas. Uh, and uh, so for this reason, they are you know, also called powers, because they have this powerful effect on you. Uh, so once you have these indriyas, uh, it means that your life takes a certain shape and a certain direction, and of course that direction is the direction of the spiritual path, which becomes emphasized uh, based on these five indriyas. Uh, uh, and there you have the five. I will talk in detail about these five later on, what they actually mean. And uh, it is uh, things like faith have a, quite a specific meaning in Buddhism. And it's quite different from the idea of faith in other religions like Christianity. Faith is uh, has a very, uh, is kind of one thing in Buddhism. Actually, it is quite different from that. Uh, so important to get some idea what these things actually mean. But I'll get back to that later on now. 
So these are the five uh, ruler, ruling qualities, faculties, uh, capabilities of the mind, if you like. Yeah. And uh, uh, then the Buddha says, someone who has completed and fulfilled these faculties uh, is a perfected one. Huh? This is the arahant, yeah, the fully awakened one. Huh? If they are weaker than that, uh, uh, then they are practicing the part, practicing to realize the fruit of perfection. Huh? If they are weaker than that again, huh, then they are a non-returner. Huh? If the five faculties are still weaker, huh, then one is practicing to realize the fruit of non-returning. Huh? If they are still weaker, huh, you are a once-returner. Still weaker, you are practicing to realize the fruit of once-returning. Huh? Still weaker, you are a stream-enter, and still weaker than that, you are practicing to realize the fruit of stream-entry. Huh? And someone who is totally and utterly lacks these five faculties uh, is an outsider uh, who belongs to the ordinary persons, uh, I say. Uh. So uh, this enumeration here of these people, this is a kind of standard enumeration of the noble people, uh, yeah, those who have insight into the Dhamma, uh, starting with, with the one who is on the fruit, uh, pr practicing to realize the fruit of stream entry, all the way up to Arahant. And what distinguishes these people is just the, the degree to which they are liberated. All of them have insight into the Dhamma, but they're only the, the liberation they have achieved varies. And uh, yeah, so they have removed a certain number of fetters. Fetters are the things that bind you to samsaric existence. And as you move up this hierarchy, you are reducing those fetters and you become less and less bound to samsara. So once you are a stream mentor, you have abandoned three fetters, uh, yeah, uh, doubt, uh, uh, holding on to um, uh, precepts and vows, silabatta uh, paramasa, and uh, the uh, uh, sakaya ditti, uh, the view of uh, a personality, a personal identity view. Uh. And then as you move up, you reduce these uh, fetters uh, gradually until you become a complete arahant. But all of these are noble ones. Uh, and here you can see that all of these, uh, all the way along, uh, these faculties, they em become empowered. Uh, the further you go on this path, the more powerful you actually, they actually become. Uh. So this shows you that things like mindfulness, for example, is something that varies uh, depending on how much insight you have, how much wisdom you have. The uh. more wisdom you have, uh, the more further on the path you are, uh, the more powerful that mindfulness is, mindfulness is going to be. Uh. And the same with the energy and the faith and everything else. So, but what about uh, the last one here, the very last one, the one who utterly lacks these five faculties, uh, is an outsider who belongs to the ordinary persons. So if you are an outsider, an outsider means someone who is not, who has a different, who is not a Buddhist, basically, uh, someone who ha has no uh, faith in the Buddha, uh, and an ordinary person, of course, is someone who is not an Arya. This is the Putujana. Uh, th this is the person who lacks these things completely. Yeah. So what this implies and what it also says elsewhere is that these five faculties uh, are only really achieved or they only really arise uh, once you become a noble one. Uh, and that's why I was saying that this uh, path uh, uh, or the five faculties are the, is basically viewing the Eightfold Path from the viewpoint of noble people. Uh, this is what it looks like once you become a noble one. Uh, what, uh, so what about the rest of us? Do, do the five faculties 
apply to people who are not noble ones, uh, but who are still practicing this path. And if you look at that definition, it talks about outsiders. So we are not really outsiders because we are kind of already practicing the path. But most people tend to be putujanas. Yeah, they're not really noble ones. So we are somewhere in between. And what that means is that sometimes the faculties will be there to some degree, and other times they might be missing. They're not stable yet. They're not stable because you haven't got the insight into the Dhamma. Only once you've become an Arya are these five faculties stable, and that's why it is said that you have the five faculties. You are endowed with them because they are, they are there, and you can use them. And that's why if you are a noble one, it is relatively easy to enter samadhi, for example, because the five faculties are there for you to use at any particular time. But for most people, it is a matter of the five faculties being very kind of unstable. Sometimes they might be quite strong, other times they might be missing. People say, oh, you know, I used to... I used to have faith, now I have less faith, I used to have more wisdom, now it's less, or, or it's the other way around, it used to be less. So the kind of, it's this, uh, you know, it, it, it's, it's unstable, basically. Yeah. And uh, once you uh, see that, you kind of start to make more sense why these five faculties are, uh, are what they are. Yeah. Uh, if you compare the five faculties here to the Noble Eightfold Path, uh, you will see that what is missing here is all the uh, sila parts, the morality parts, yeah? right action, right speech, and right livelihood is missing. Uh, and why is that missing? Well, because uh, if you are a noble one, uh, the sila is already established. Uh, yeah? Sila is already part of who you are, uh, uh, and you don't actually have to practice the sila anymore. You don't have to emphasize it so much, uh, because it is a natural expression of a noble person that they live morally. And that's why that is missing. Yeah? But right effort... Uh, Right mindfulness, uh, yeah, and samadhi, that's both part of the five indriyas and also part of the Noble Eightfold Path. Why? Because, well, these are the things that uh, you need to practice regardless. Uh, yeah, this belongs both for the noble ones and also for the for ordinary people. And then you have uh, uh, the last one, which is uh, here is called the faculty of wisdom. Uh, that is very similar to the idea of right view uh, on the Noble Eightfold Path. Uh, Right view is often depends on an insight into the nature of things. That is exactly what wisdom is here. And then you have faith. Well, faith is kind of similar to right view at a more preliminary stage. And that faith is what drives you and gives you the right aim, the right purpose, which is samasankapa, the second factor of the Noble Eightfold Path. So these are very closely related to each other. And you can see how they are just basically different expressions uh, of the same idea from slightly different angle. Uh. So that is the five faculties and the Noble Eightfold Path compared. Uh. So, uh, uh, it, so they are interesting because they are a slightly different angle on these things, particularly the ideas of faith and wisdom is different. Uh, and for that reason it is worthwhile uh, having a look at these, and also because they are part of the 37 Bodhipakya Dhammas. So now let's have a look at what they actually mean, and how they are analyzed in the suttas. And this is the next sutta here, which is called, uh, aptly enough, it's called analysis, because it anal analyzes. Uh, monks or mendicants, there are these five faculties what five? The faculty of faith, of energy, mindfulness, samadhi, stillness, 
and wisdom. And now what is the faculty of faith? It is when a noble disciple has faith in the realized one's awakening. That blessed one is perfected, a fully awakened Buddha, accomplished in knowledge and conduct, a holy knower of the world, supreme guide for those who wish to train, teacher of gods and humans, awakened, blessed. This is called the faculty of faith. And I'm sure you recognize that faculty of faith straight away. That is the famous Itipiso formula. Itipiso Bhagava Arahang Samma Sambuddho Vidya, etc. So this is the standard description of faith in the suttas. And here it is called the faculty of faith. So uh, uh, it is a faculty because here it is a power. It is a power of the noble ones because they know this. They know that this is the case, that the Buddha has these particular qualities. And you may wonder, how is it possible to know that? The Buddha lived two and a half thousand years ago. We live now. How can you possibly know that the Buddha had these qualities? And the answer is that when you have that insight into those teachings, you know that the person who gave you these teachings, uh, he must have had these particular qualities. Uh, otherwise, he wouldn't be able to give you these teachings. Uh, in other words, he would have had the same insight. Uh, and this formula here is really just expressing that insight of the Buddha, uh, yeah, what he actually had understood. In other words, uh, the ideas of happiness and suffering, uh, what is the true meaning of life. Uh, and then because having that understanding, also understanding the path and all that. Uh, but I will go through this formula later on, but just for now, just as a, as a reference now, uh, it's, uh, have some idea what is meant by this. So, what does it mean? What does faith actually mean in Buddhism? What is the, uh, how does it express itself? How do you know that you have faith? And there is two, uh, sadha is the Pali word, and there is two aspects of this word sadha that is important to kind of get. And one is the, what you might call the cognitive aspect. Cognitive just means that you have a, uh, you have an underst- it's like an understanding perspective, uh, yeah, uh, on faith. Uh, so you have a uh, confidence, if you like. You have you have a knowledge. You have an understanding of what is going on, uh, and that is one aspect of faith. And of course, that cognitive aspect, the idea of understanding what is happening, understanding the Dhamma, this is quite different from what we often think of when we think about faith. Often we think about faith from a Christian point of view. The idea is to adhere to something regardless of whether it makes sense or not. But in Buddhism, it's the other way around. It is when it makes sense. It is when it comes together. It is when uh, you know you can have a reasonable confidence in something by being reasonable about things. That is when you get faith. So in Buddhism, the uh, distance between faith and wisdom is very small. In fact, faith and wisdom are just two aspects of the same kind of thing. And that is why as you develop the path, you gradually attain more wisdom, more understanding. But part of attaining that more wisdom is that you also become more faithful, you have more faith. Yeah, these things always go together. You gain more faith precisely because you are seeing things according to reality. When you see things according to reality, it becomes incontrovertible. You can't argue with it anymore. That's why confidence becomes very strong. 
So in some ways, the word faith is not re- not doesn't cover it very well because it is not really faith in the way we ordinarily think about faith. Uh, it is more it's more that confidence that this is true, yeah. And this is the cognitive aspect of this, we, you know, the understanding aspect of what is going on here. So, but on the other hand, uh, uh, faith is a useful word to, uh, uh, because uh, faith also has the idea, Sadda in Pali also has the idea of uh, an emotional aspect. Uh, yeah? It's not just understanding, but it's also an emotional aspect. Uh, and this is one of the very important points about Sadda, is precisely this emotional aspect, because it is that emotional part uh, which actually uh, then gives rise to all these positive feelings uh, that you then can use in your meditation practice. Uh, and in that sense, it is closer to what we ordinarily think about faith, perhaps in other religions or other teachings. Uh, this emotional uplift, this thing that supports you, this feeling that, wow, this is just so good. Uh, yeah, wow, you feel so happy about this because it is so, uh, uh, makes such great sense. This is, this is what a wonderful thing to have a teaching that takes you away from suffering and brings you happiness. Uh, and you feel really inspired by that. Uh, and that is the uh, 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 emotional aspect uh, of, of sadha. So both of these aspects are very important uh, and they support each other. Uh, in Buddhism, the uh, emotions and intellect are kind of fused into one. Uh, and this is kind of here called sadha, if you want. Uh, maybe intellect is the wrong word, more like understanding or insight uh, or uh, seeing things in the right way. Uh. So this is uh, uh, sadha in Buddhism. And this is why it matters a lot, because it gives you that kind of thing at the bottom there, which kind of gets the whole path going. And it's very useful for this particular reason. And it's useful to develop a little bit. And I will talk about later on how to develop faith, because uh, uh, obviously that matters. Uh, otherwise, it's not going not gonna to happen. Uh. But before I go on to that, let's first of all look at the uh, remain remaining definitions here huh? and what is the faculty of energy huh? it's when a mendicant lives with energy aroused uh, roused up for giving up unskillful qualities and embracing skillful qualities uh, they are strong staunchly vigorous uh, not slacking off when it comes to developing skillful qualities uh, this is called the faculty of energy huh? So this is um, uh, very similar to what we have seen before in terms of right effort. Uh, yeah, the idea of developing good qualities. Uh, they can see the wording here is slightly different. Uh, they have some. The, the words are are slightly different. Uh, and one of the reasons why they are different is because again we're dealing with the noble ones. Uh, so here you are not slacking off. Uh, you are strong. You, you you don't actually strong means like firm. Yeah, you don't slack. You don't slacken off again. Uh, you keep on going. Uh, uh, and the reason, of course, is because if you are a noble one, uh, you know that this is what you have to do, and you know that this is the uh, what is required. Uh, so you never really give up because also you know that it works uh, if you keep on doing it. Uh, so slightly different uh, emphasis, uh, but really the same thing as the samma. Uh, vayama or samapadana, the right effort. Uh, yeah, you're always looking out for those defilements, always 
uh, trying to avoid the anger and the ill will, trying to develop good qualities, uh, because you know the importance of these things. Uh, it is always at the top of your mind. Yeah? One of the problems for most people is that we often forget about these things because we get busy in daily life or whatever. Uh, but once you have this insight, uh, then really then the spiritual life really is always at the top uh, and everything else is, comes under the spiritual life. So everything else becomes like a... Uh, becomes like tools, yeah? it becomes like something you use uh, to improve the practice of your spiritual life. Uh, spiritual life becomes at the top. So you never really forget about these things. Uh, so even in daily life you have enough mindfulness to see what is going on uh, uh, and to be able to control your emotions uh, and to be able to uh, use your wisdom faculty to um, uh, to uh, improve the path and to make the path go in the right direction. Uh. But even the noble ones may sometimes use, lose their mindfulness occasionally if things get too busy or whatever. But it comes back again very quickly once they see what is, what is happening, what is going on. So uh, then we have the faculty of mindfulness. What is the faculty of mindfulness? It's when a noble disciple is mindful. They have utmost mindfulness and alertness and can remember and recall what was said and done long ago. This is called the faculty of mindfulness. So this is an alternative definition of mindfulness. Yeah, usually it is defined as the four satipatthanas. Here it is defined as you can recall what was said and done long ago. So this is uh, uh, obviously a slightly different way of looking at it. Uh, and this is a complementary way of thinking about mindfulness. Uh, uh, and this shows you, if you like, the memory aspect of mindfulness of sati, uh, that it has very closely related to memory. So on the one hand, sati means that clarity of mind, uh, where the mind is uh, uh, sees clearly and nothing too much is going on. Uh, yeah, you, it's kind of calm down and clear. Uh, and on the other hand, you have the sati, the memory aspect of to sati, uh, which you find here. And these two are very closely connected to each other. Uh. And uh, there is a nice sutta in, in the Bhujanga Sangyuta, uh, which can, we're going to have a look at the Bhujangas later on, uh, uh, where a Brahmin goes to the Buddha and he says to the Buddha, well, you know, sometimes I can remember all these Brahmanical verses and hymns, uh, and sometimes I can't. So why is that? Uh, and then the Buddha says, well, sometimes you are, your mind is kind of overwhelmed by defilements and you can't remember anything. Uh, a lot of times your mind is clear, and that clarity of mind is really what mindfulness is about. Uh, yeah? And then you can remember her. Uh, so in other words, when you have mindfulness, uh, uh, when you have clarity of mind, there isn't too much thinking going on, uh, then uh, you can remember things better, both when the information goes in and also when you have to retrieve the information later on. Uh, yeah? So it makes more of an impact on you when you're trying to memorize things, uh, but also it is more powerful later on when you want to retrieve that information. So the less defilements you have, uh, the more clarity you have, the more mindfulness you have, uh, the more easy, the more powerful is the function of memory uh, in a person. Uh. So this is why the word sati has this double meaning in the suttas. Uh, the original meaning is more like memory, but then it comes to mean also the clarity of mind that you have. Uh. And this tells you something about, uh, for example, if you want to uh, if you want to do things uh, 
that have impact on you later on. For example, if you want to do an act of generosity uh, uh, and you want that uh, act of generosity to be very powerful, uh, uh, the way to do that is to make sure that when you give, uh, you have clarity about what you're doing. Uh, yeah, you give an act of generosity, do it with a pure heart. Uh, you don't do it with some kind of ulterior motive of desire or ill will or whatever. Uh, you do it with a pure mind as you possibly can, uh, with mindfulness, uh, even feeling joyful while you're giving. Uh, and when you do that, it leaves a very powerful imprint on you. Uh, yeah, because the memory becomes deep. Uh, this is what this is about. Uh, so it leaves a deep memory trace inside of you. Uh, and then later on, when you sit down in your meditation practice uh, and your mind is pure again and you have... Uh, the defilements aren't very strong, it becomes easy to retrieve that memory from the past, uh, both because your mind is pure now and also because when the memory was laid down, it was pure at that time as well. Uh, it makes a powerful imprint. And then when you bring it back to mind again, uh, it gi gives rise to joy, yeah, and it gives rise to happiness. And then, uh, of course, uh, that enforces your, uh, empowers your meditation and makes it possible to watch the breath or whatever. And then you go through this whole this wonderful sequence of happiness, eventually leading to samadhi as a consequence. So you can see how all of these things tie together very, very beautifully once you understand these princi basic principles or how, how these things work. So that is mindfulness as memory is one of the things you find here. And this is found in quite a few places in the suttas, uh, this idea of mindfulness as, as memory. You can recall what was said and done long ago. Uh, and um, I remember Ajahn Brahm was telling me that when he was a school child, he, he must always have, have very good mindfulness uh, because he would be able to remember pretty much everything the teacher had said. Uh, so the teacher would have said something once uh, in class over a year, uh, and he would be the only one in the class who could remember that. And then he would kind of get 100% on his exams and everything. Uh, so, he was, uh, uh, so this was kind of the, the advantage of having a very good mindfulness. Uh. Anyway, the next one is the faculty of samadhi, uh, the samadindriya, faculty of immersion as Ajahn Sujato has it. Uh, it's when a noble disciple relying on letting go gains immersion, gains unification of mind. Uh, this is called the faculty of immersion. Uh, so again, a slightly different definition from what we are used to uh, for samadhi. Uh, uh, unification of mind again is chittasa ekagata or chittakagata. And, but here you have this uh, other definition, the idea of relying on letting go. And this, partly for this, is the Vosagga Ramanang Karitva. And Vosagga is letting go, is quite a good translation for that. Vosagga means to relinquish, to let go. For example, if you give something to someone, you are letting go. You are Vosagga. This is one of the things that is one of the ways that generosity is defined in the suttas. And a ramana, a ramana means like a foundation or basis. And karitva is having made, so having made a foundation through letting go, through giving up. And what is it that we give up? Well, the main thing that we give up in Buddhism is the sensory world or the sensual world, the interest in that world, yeah, the attachments to that world of the five senses. And uh, so if you uh, regularly learn yourself gradually to give up the sensual world, uh, give up attachment to that, lose interest in that. Uh, the more you lose interest in that world, the, more you, the less you rely on that, the less you deal with that, uh, the more easily, easy samadhi comes. Uh, 
And this is why some, you know, some of these uh, uh, simple things like understanding the unreliability of the five senses and the five sensual world, uh, how the world outside is always going to let you down ultimately, uh, why these things are important. Because when you reflect like that, uh, you actually start gradually to lose interest in that world. Uh, a world that ultimately will lead to pain and suffering uh, is not really worth holding on to. Uh, it becomes more and more clear as you reflect on that. And then you gradually let go. And that allows you to move into samadhi. And there's a kind of a, you know, as one thing goes down, the other thing goes up. You lose interest in one world and you get more interest in the other world. And it kind of is a gradual rebalancing of things. And you, you, you find your interest elsewhere. But you cannot let go of one of them completely all First of all, you have to find happiness somewhere else in the meantime. Otherwise, there's nothing in your life. You kind of have a vacuum. So you have to. This has to be balanced out somehow for it to work properly. So um, that is how uh, samadhi comes about uh, as you lose that interest in the sensual world gradually, stage by stage, uh, by just by. Uh, using wise reflection and not so much by using force or willpower. Huh? Then we have the last one, which is the uh, faculty of wisdom. Huh? And the Buddha says, what is the faculty of wisdom? It's when a noble disciple is wise. They have the wisdom of the arising and passing away, which is noble, penetrative, and leads to the complete ending of suffering. Huh? This is called the faculty of wisdom. Huh? These are the five faculties. So the, fa the wisdom of arising and passing away, this is just the understanding, the nature of existence, that things come and go, and things are unreliable, things are never really, uh, you can never really hold on to things. That is what that means. And of course, that has a large number of different levels, but ultimately it encompasses everything. The five khandas is really everything, and when it does that, that's when it becomes noble, because at that point you become a noble one. And that's why it is called penetrator, because it penetrates the very core of existence, uh, the core of what life is all about. Uh, and because uh, it sees all the way to the bottom of all of these things, uh, once you have seen that, uh, uh, then there is no turning back anymore. Then you are on the path to the complete ending of suffering, uh, because now you understand the nature of reality. Now you just have to keep on eliminating those defilements, uh, and eventually you become, uh, you, you reach full awakening yourself. Uh, so that is the idea of wisdom in Buddhism, is actually just to see the nature of existence, yeah, the five khandhas. And that existence that you see the nature of, mostly it is just focusing on yourself, focusing on your own uh, five khandhas, uh, and seeing them for what they are. That's really what it means to understand the nature of existence. And uh, we saw that yesterday, how you do that using anapanasati, just watching the breath. That's all you have to do to kind of ultimately grasp what this is all about. So, uh, uh, there you are, the five uh, faculties. And uh, this, so this is a slightly different way from maybe what, how they are normally seen and then we have the more standard way which is the next sutta so uh, this is just to kind of round off the definition of these five faculties and here the buddha says mendicants there are these five faculties what five the faculty of faith energy mindfulness samadhi and wisdom and where is the faculty of faith to be seen in the four factors of stream entry 
four factors of stream entry. What is that? It is the uh, uh, it is the uh, uh, the what is it called? The avecha pasada, which means like unshakable, unshakable confidence in the Buddha Dhamma Sangha, and also the uh, uh, the um, uh, morality or the sila which is established, yeah, the sila which is beloved by the Aryans, by the noble ones. Uh, these are the four factors of stream entry here. Um, and then you have the faculty of energy. Where should that be seen? In the four right efforts, yeah, kind of very standard. Uh, where should the faculty of mindfulness be seen? In the four kinds of mindfulness meditation, the four satipatthanas. Uh, where should the faculty of immersion be seen in the four jhanas, the four absorptions? And where should the faculty of wisdom be seen in the four noble truths? So this is kind of a very standard way of looking at these things. These are the five faculties. So these are roughly equivalent to each other. Yeah, they're what you've seen here and what you saw before. Maybe not exactly equivalent, but very closely related to each other. So uh, these are different ways of looking at the same idea. Uh, um, okay, so uh, now what I want to do now is to have a look at how these five faculties arise, uh, how they interrelate with each other. Uh, and one of the interesting things about the Buddhist path is how everything is conditioned uh, and everything is interrelated with other things and nothing really stands in isolation. And for example, if you look at the Noble Eightfold Path, then there is a clear progress in those eight factors. When you have right view, then right intention or right aim or right purpose happens as a consequence of right view. Yeah, why is that? Because whatever view you have of the world, that view will tend to inform what is interesting to you, what you aim for, what your purpose in life becomes. So right view will give rise to a particular purpose. And then once you have that purpose, then you start becoming moral, you start purifying the mind, you meditate and you gain samadhi and all of that. So there's a clear progression. And all of these sets that we look at, everything in Buddhism is really has that kind of progression. And it's also true for the five indriyas. Yeah, you start with the faith and then you progress through these indriyas, indriyas according to the sequence that has been laid down. And for this reason, the asadda, the faith, is the most important one because that is the foundation for all the other ones. So we're going to have a look at quite a bit later on a bit about this factor of faith and how we can kind of give rise to that because that is the, uh, the kind of the uh, fundamental thing that from which everything else comes. But now what I want to do is look at how these five uh, interrelate to each other. And it's another uh, interesting sutta, in my opinion, anyway, because uh, it gives a slightly different view of these factors again. And every time we get a different view, it kind of expands your horizon a little bit. So, uh, uh, this is called the Apana Sutta, and we are still in the Indriya Sangyutta, the Connected Discourse of the Buddha, 48th Sangyutta, Sutta number 50. And uh, this is how it goes. So I have heard, at one time the Buddha was staying in the lands of the Angas, near the Angan town of Apana. Then the Buddha said to Venerable Sariputta, Sariputta, would a noble disciple who is sure and devoted to the realized one have any doubt or uncertainty about the realized one or his instructions? 
So here you have sure and devoted, and uh, these words are in the Pali are ekantagato, and ekantagato, ekanta has this mean of certainty, of be, being absolutely sure about something. Yeah. Yeah, that you have no doubt about something. It's kind of one-sided, if you like. There's no, there's no doubt anymore. And devoted, abhipassana, is related to uh, pasanna, which is a, a word which means confidence again. Abhipassana means like a higher or developed confidence. So here again, these things really point to the fact that someone is already an Arya, a noble one, uh, because their confidence is firmly established. You are sure, yeah? You are fully devoted or fully confident uh, in the realized one. Uh, and for that reason, uh, uh, of course, uh, uh, you don't have any doubt or uncertainty in the realized one or his teachings, uh, because uh, having uh, no doubt about the realized one is the same thing as having no doubt in the teachings. Uh, these things go together. If you understand who the Buddha is, uh, uh, of course, you also have confidence in the teachings because they come from that uh, insight into the nature of reality. Huh? And Venerable Sariputta replies, Sir, a noble disciple who is sure and uh, is fully confident in the realized one would have no doubt or uncertainty about the realized one or his instructions. And then he says, you can expect that a faithful, noble disciple with live with energy roused up for giving up unskillful qualities and embracing skillful qualities. They are strong, staunchly vigorous and not slacking off when it comes to developing skillful qualities for the energy is the faculty of energy. So once you have that faith and confidence in the Buddha and his teachings, then it is to be expected that you will have the energy. Uh, and the reason for that is because you understand the nature of the path and you understand the nature of existence. You understand the danger in defilements and how they always lead to suffering. And your hand gets kind of pulled away from that hot plate because otherwise you will burn yourself. So you have no interest in moving in the direction of either ill will or sensuality because you understand the only thing you will do is you will get burns as a consequence. So you pull away your hand, you pull away your mind, your mind recoils from these things. It's quite nice, isn't it? You recoil from these things. Ill will is absolutely, it's not just kind of something that you try to get rid of. It is something you actively recoil from because you understand how, how bad it is. The only person you're really hurting by ill will is yourself. So ill will becomes a, a no-no for a person like this. So energy is always roused up for abandoning these things because you understand directly through your own insight that this is dangerous. But it's also the same for sensuality. You understand also the danger in that. So you recoil from the sensual things of the world as well. It again becomes an automatic process. Your energy is roused up. And when you see that the tendency of the mind goes towards sensuality, which it does even for the noble ones on the lower stages because the tendency is very ingrained. But once you see that and you are clear about it, you recoil again and you move, you move back from that. Not fully, because at this point you are still capable of indulging in these things, but as a general principle you don't attach to these things in the same way as you would ordinarily. So, you, uh, uh, so this is what uh, 
So this is the connection here between faith, because the faith includes an understanding of things. So this is what we're all trying to approximate. Yeah, we're trying to approximate this seeing the danger in these things, especially in the ill will. That's by far the most important one. And the more you see that, the more you also will kind of have that energy to get rid of it. And you will have the effort to abandon it because you recoil a bit from these things. You see the danger in these things. But I said I was going to say something about how faith arises as well. How can we give, get, give rise to that faith? Because it is not obvious yeah, uh, why we should have faith in the Dhamma or, or how it's not obvious how to strengthen it, etc. But um, this is explained in the suttas in a number of places. And uh, the standard way that the suttas begin explaining this, they always start with the Kalyanamitta. So you start off with having a Kalyanamitta, and when you have a Kalyanamitta, meaning largely the Buddha or meaning any other noble people who have insight into these teachings, once you have that Kalyanamitta, then, of course, faith starts to arise as a consequence of that. And the reason is because when you are hang around someone who gives you these kind of teachings, when you hear these teachings, if you are ready for them, faith will come about as a consequence. Yeah, when someone tells you that if you are a kind person, you will be more happy, you kind of know that already, right? We all know that already. When you're kind, you feel good about yourself, you will be more happy. So all we need to do is we need someone to remind us that these things are true, and then it enables us to be more kind in life and to be more generous and caring towards ourselves and also towards other people. Yeah, so sometimes all you need to do is awaken that latent wisdom that is there in each one of us, and that is what the Dhamma does. And then, of course, it is not just that you hear those teachings, but you hear those teachings from someone who actually has the credibility to give those teachings. Yeah, you see the Buddha and you see somebody who has all of those qualities. They don't have any, there's no sign of defilements there. Uh, they have the kind of peace that you would expect to see in someone without defilements. Uh, they have the gentleness and the kindness. Uh, uh, they have the ability to enter samadhi easily. Uh, they are completely without greed for anything in the world. Uh, and you wonder how that's possible to be so utterly ungreedy. And uh, you see the qualities there. And then when they kind of you have that uh, integrity uh, in the person's uh, um, behavior and external signs and you also hear the teaching that goes with that it becomes very powerful and that is where faith and confidence often arises when you see those things together so it is very uh, this combination of the texts and seeing people who have those qualities is very powerful it can be enough to read the text but for most of us just seeing things on paper is not really enough yeah, if you have very strong faculties, you might be able to read this and think, yeah, this is really good stuff, and you might be really inspired. But when you actually see these things lived uh, well by people uh, who have actually achieved some of these things uh, and they have uh, reached some of the benefits of these teachings, uh, then it is far more powerful again uh, because you see the living example uh, of the teachings in practice. Uh, and uh, this is so useful. So this is how confidence arises. So what is, uh, if you want to gain more confidence in these teachings, uh, 
one of the most important things is to keep on reading the suttas, uh, yeah, or listening to people who explain them. Uh, sometimes uh, kind of hang out with people who you feel have some of these qualities, uh, yeah, just to get a feeling for what they are. Uh, and then gradually you build up a feeling and a confidence and faith uh, that there's something very powerful and very important. In fact, the very meaning of life itself uh, is to be found in these teachings. Uh, and if you practice it, you too will gain eventually you will gain that sense of having found the meaning of life once you have a feeling that you found the meaning of life then of course there's nothing else really worthwhile doing apart from that so this is how faith arises and of course that faith becomes strengthened as you have success on the path because that's when your own wisdom arises and as i was saying wisdom and faith are two sides of the same coin in buddhism so when you get more wisdom, when your defilements reduce, you see that all of this works uh, and it all comes together very beautifully, uh, faith becomes very strengthened, confidence becomes strengthened uh, as a consequence. Uh, so this is how faith arises. Uh, and uh, then because of that faith, then as I just mentioned, the energy uh, comes about because of that. Uh, and then... Uh, Venerable Sariputta says uh, that energy is the faculty of energy. Yeah? It is very, it is steady, it is always there, it is always reliable. You know how to use it in such a way as to build up the good qualities and reduce the bad ones. So. And then he says, you can expect that a faithful and energetic noble disciple will be mindful. Huh? with utmost mindfulness and alertness, able to remember and recall what was said long ago. For their mindfulness is the faculty of mindfulness. So when you have that energy, yeah, then of course you have the energy to reduce the bad qualities. And because the mind is free, largely free of bad qualities, it means that there's nothing there to distort the mind, to take it off into the future, into the past. But you tend to stay in the present moment because the defilements are very weak. Yeah, and because the defilements are weak and you have presence of mind, then the memory, as I mentioned before, is going to be very strong. Yeah? So energy that overcomes defilements will naturally also come with mindfulness. Yeah? And as I mentioned before, energy, mindfulness and the gladness of the mind, the pamuja, not quite the piti, as I said yesterday, but more like the preliminary piti, the gladness of mind, where you feel that you know you, the path and, and you feel in control of your life because you have mindfulness uh, and all of these things. Uh, th these things tend to come together energy pamuja and uh, uh, mindfulness uh. and then uh, he says you can expect that a faithful energetic and mindful noble disciple will relying on letting go gain immersion gain unification of mind for samadhi is their faculty of immersion of uh, samadhi is the faculty of stillness uh. so once you have mindfulness uh, then you have the ability to stay with the meditation object. Because you have the ability to stay with the meditation object, it means that you will attain samadhi, because you won't be distracted by defilements, and you will just hang out with the breath, and then the meditation will happen as a consequence. So again, this is natural for the noble one, because, uh, uh, because these faculties are stable. So noble people normally will attain samadhi fairly easily here. Then he says, uh, you can expect that a faithful, energetic, mindful, noble disciple with a mind immersed in samadhi will understand this. So this is the wisdom faculty. Yes? So this is an 
different way of looking at wisdom again. And this is what he will understand. Transmigration has no known beginning. No first point is found of sentient beings roaming and transmigrating, hindered by ignorance and fettered by craving. But when the dark mass of ignorance fades away and ceases with nothing left over, that is the state of peace. That state is peaceful and sublime. That is the stilling of all activities, the letting go of all attachments, the ending of craving, fading away, cessation, extinguishment. For the noble wisdom is the faculty of wisdom. So normally, just before the Buddha was talking about the uh, passing, the arising and passing away of phenomena, and then he was talking about the four noble truths being the a faculty of wisdom, but here it is quite different. Yeah, and this is a, so. This is just an alternative way again of looking at the idea of wisdom. And actually, when you look at this carefully, this is very closely related to the idea of the four noble truths. So first of all here you have the idea of transmigration has no known beginning. And this is basically suffering. Yeah, The idea that you just keep on going around and around and around, transmigrating without any known beginning. And you have been doing this and you cannot even find the first point. It's been going on forever. That is what suffering is about. The kind of endless going around, always falling into trouble, into problems, uh, and not really having any purpose in all of this, uh, but just going around and round and round, doing the same thing again and again and again. Uh, and once you start to see that, you see that it is utterly pointless. Uh, the reason why this life seems pointless to us uh, is because it, we only see one life. And when you only see one life, it seems like we have a certain direction that we're doing something useful. But when you see this in the big perspective, it all becomes utterly meaningless. And so it has no known beginning. Yeah, you go back in time, you ca- cannot find the first point. And as I men- mentioned so many times, this is uh, one of those things that is quite unique to Buddhism. Most religions in the world, they have the idea that you, there is a first point, there is a starting point. In fact, you can argue that this is one of the purposes of religion. The purpose of philosophies is to actually show us how all of this thing started, why we are here. Yeah, The point of religion is to kind of give answers to the big questions in life. So they say, God created the universe. And because God created the universe, that is why we're here. But the Buddha says, actually, and you cannot find any first point. It just goes on and on, backwards and backwards and backwards. It's just one cause leading on to a result, and another cause being the cause for that cause, and backwards and backwards without any kind of first beginning. And I always found that that is such a beautiful way of thinking about existence, because the idea that God created the world, to me, is completely unsatisfactory. Because God, what created God then? Where did God come from? It is just another way of saying that things have been going on forever. Yeah, Because God also must have... St- he, 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 he or she or it or whatever it is would also be there. So why would God be there? You might as well say the universe was there. It makes no difference. It is not really a satisfactory explanation. But when you say that there is causality that goes back into uh, a, a kind of an unknown beginning or just goes back and back for potentially forever, yeah, then I think it is a far more satisfactory way of looking at the universe. 
And there are little things like that that make me kind of give me confidence in the teaching of the Buddha. They are different in that sense, where other philosophies or systems might not be satisfactory. There's something very satisfactory by this kind of outlook. Uh, it is very realistic. Uh, but there's another thing that I'd like to point out about this. He says that there is no known beginning here. He doesn't say that there is no beginning. He doesn't make a statement of absoluteness. What he says is that I have looked as far back as I can. I couldn't find a beginning. Yeah. So he's basing himself on what he has seen. He says there is no known beginning here. Because it is obviously impossible to go back uh, infinitely into the past. Uh, that by definition is impossible. Uh, so you can only go so far. So all you can ever say is that there is no known beginning. You can never actually say there is absolutely no beginning. Because that will be a claim that goes beyond what is observable uh, so again, the Buddha bases himself on observable things. It's like a, it's a bit kind of scientific in that sense. He doesn't make claims that go beyond what can be uh, what can be discovered through your own wisdom. So transmigration has no known beginning. No first point is found of sentient beings roaming and transmigrating. And uh, again, this is such a useful way of thinking about the idea of uh, samsara, this idea of roaming and transmigrating. Uh, and uh, Because, uh, again, the problem with our life is that it often seems purposeful. Yeah, It seems that we're doing things that have a purpose. Uh, we're kind of going somewhere. Perhaps we're not sure exactly where, but we have a feeling of going somewhere. We're getting education. Yeah, and then we, then we have a certain job. Yeah, and then we kind of get have a partner in life and a kind of relationships and all of these kind of things and it seems like things are kind of heading somewhere and then the more you move on you wonder where is it actually going is it really does this really have any real purpose after all uh, but the problem is that the sense of self makes meaning out of things where there may not be a meaning because the sense of self wants to act we identify with the doer and that activity only has meaning if life itself has meaning activity without meaning is pointless the doer that doer can't exist anymore there's no point for the doer to exist so we create this illusion of purpose that's what craving does that's what the doer inside of us does life seems purposeful even though it may not so the Buddha, Buddha's idea of the world is just so radical. He is saying that we are roaming about. The word roam in English means random movement, not without purpose, without goal, without aim, not going anywhere. That's what it means. You're going around the samsaric existence, now being reborn here, now being reborn there. But there's no goal inside. It has no purpose. It's just redoing things that you have done before in different areas, in different uh, realms and different existences and that is why one of the reasons why recalling your past lives is so uh, kind of eye such an eye opener yeah it is kind of you you coming out of that shell again somebody mentioned that eggshell the other day in one of the questions uh, thank you for mentioning that but it's, it's such a beautiful simile the idea of the little chick coming out of the eggshell you have lived your whole life inside this eggshell yeah, and this is like this existence of ours is the eggshell, small little existence. We can't really see very far. And one day you break out of that shell and you see reality for what it is. And part of that is seeing this aimless roaming around in samsaric existence without any purpose, without any goal. And you realize that the goals you thought you had in this life, it was just an illusion. It was just, you were just 
blinded by your own sense of self, blinded by not seeing the larger perspective on things. So it's kind of bleak, isn't it? So it's good that there is some happiness on this path, otherwise we can go nuts because it is just too, it can seem so bleak. But of course the point is that there is a way out, yeah? So it is a, in the end there is a very positive message. But you have to kind of balance seeing the problem with seeing the solution. And then when the two things come together, it becomes actually a very, a very positive thing here. So... Um, I hope nobody leaves straight after this talk because they think this is too much. Sometimes it is like that. Yeah, I didn't come here to hear this. This is just too much. But uh, so if you do think that some of these things are too much, then don't don't worry too much about it because this obviously depends on a degree of faith. The whole idea of rebirth for most people is based on faith to some extent. So if it seems like it's too much, just don't don't worry too much, put it to one side and then deal with those things that make, make sense to you instead. So uh, roaming around, hindered by ignorance, yeah? This is the problem. We are hindered by avidja. Avidja means delusion or lack of knowledge. We don't see rebirth. We don't see the bigger picture of things. And because we don't see that, we don't understand that there is a problem. Yeah, so this is kind of where we are walking around in the dark. We're inside the little egg, whereas the real world outside actually looks very different from what we think it is. So we are blind, hitting our heads again and again against the ceiling because there's no light inside so we can see what is happening going on. We don't know the path because, again, it is dark. We can't see where the path goes. Hindered by ignorance, no idea really what is going on. And fettered by craving. Fettered by craving means that craving is what ties us to rebirth, ties us to samsaric existence. One of the most powerful things that ties us to samsaric existence is uh, uh, sensuality, the sensual world, uh, yeah, because it seems so enticing very often. Uh, it seems like there are so many nice things in this world that we want to do and we want to experience, we want to uh, have relationships, we want to travel around the world, we want to do all of these kind of things. Uh, uh, and uh, we forget about the downside, we forget about the problems, uh, we forget that it's all going to disappoint us in the end. Uh, and because we forget that, we are fettered by the craving. The craving ties us to samsaric existence. Uh, the craving always promises something in the future. Uh, and because we're always directed towards the future, uh, it means that we're al always perpetuating life after life, moving on, projecting ourselves into some renewed existence in the future based on craving, because craving is about the future always. So we are fettered by this, held down, and then hindered by ignorance. Yeah? So this beautiful idea of being blind and fettered at the same time. Again, it's not very, not very nice, is it? A blind person fettered to suffering, that's really what it says here. So again, it's just one of these useful metaphors or useful ways of regarding uh, sansaric existence to kind of uh, give you a bit of a push to move in a different direction. Uh, so a lot of this is about the noble truths. You can see suffering there. You can see the cause of suffering, yeah, being fettered by craving. Craving is the cause of suffering. Uh, and then you have the escape from suffering, which is the next one. Uh, 
But when the dark mass of ignorance fades away and ceases with nothing left over, then you attain the state of peace, which is sublime. And this state is called the stilling of all activities, the letting go of all attachments, the ending of craving, fading away, cessation and uh, extinguishment. So this is that state where you, the stilling of all activities means that uh, uh, you are no longer interested in samsaric existence, so you no longer make any kamma that drives you on to future lives. This is sabbe sankara samata, the stilling of all activities. You no longer create kamma because you are no longer interested in a renewed existence in the future. You're no longer looking towards the future at all. You are just happily present in the present moment. Letting go of all attachments, sabupadipatinisaga. Attachments here is uh, everything in the world that you can possibly attach to her, including uh, your very most personal things like consciousness and, and the doer. Uh. And then the ending of craving, yeah, craving coming to an end, uh, uh, fading away uh, uh, and cessation, uh, again referring to that craving coming to an end, uh, and extinguishment also meaning the craving being extinguished. Uh, and uh, uh, this is what is meant by that uh, uh, noble wisdom uh, is the faculty of wisdom. Uh, so there you have the ending of the whole round, uh, and this is peaceful, this is sublime. Uh, so um, let me just finish this very briefly because uh, the sutta is almost come to an end. Uh, and uh, then Venerable Sariputta says, when a noble disciple has tried again and again, recollected again and again, entered immersion again and again, and understood with wisdom again and again, they will be confident of this. I have previously heard of these things, but now I have direct meditative experience of them. I see them with penetrating wisdom, for the, fact, for the faith is the faculty of faith. So here it goes back full circle. Yeah, Once you have that wisdom, that wisdom is really what the faith is all about. Or you can here call it the, f the faculty of confidence, because really that wisdom, I think, is more related to confidence than it is to faith. So uh, uh, what you have previously heard of, what you have previously read in the word of the Buddha, now you know the truth of these things. And because you know the truth of these things, uh, your confidence, your faith is established. Uh, you have the avecha pasada, the confirmed confidence in the teachings, uh, because you know what is going on. Uh, so doing these things, you practice these things again and again and again, starting with the faith, uh, beginning by reading the word of the Buddha, and then developing it in this way, and eventually the whole thing comes back bang together and then the faculty of faith is established and then you continue practicing with that faculty of faith until ultimately you become fully awakened and this is how this path gradually unfolds and then uh, the Buddha says good good Sariputta Sariputta a noble disciple who is sure and devoted to the realized one would have no doubt or uncertainty about the realized one and his instructions. And then he repeats everything that Venerable Sariputta has said, just to make absolutely sure that uh, there is no doubt about that. So that is how the five spiritual faculties work and how they kind of one leads on to the next one and what they mean. 
And uh, the next thing I want to do is to have a little bit more look at uh, the meaning of faith. What does it mean to have faith in the Buddha specifically? Uh, and that is what is we will be doing uh, this afternoon. Uh, so uh, we'll see you back again at 3 o'clock here. Yeah.